Friends, before I begin, shall we bow our heads in prayer? Mighty God, giver of all wisdom and understanding, send to us your Holy Spirit that we may abide in his presence and be taught by his words and that open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to feel the very heartbeat of Christ Jesus in his words to us. And may the words of my mouth and meditations of all our hearts, O Lord, be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Before I begin, I'd like to point out for those who are maybe visiting us for the first time or, or have uh, possibly forgotten that uh, there's a sermon outline in the middle of the uh, bulletin uh, with some blanks to fill in in case you feel like napping. Uh, and so feel free to, to doodle. I've actually been blessed very much. Uh, some people have actually given me their doodles. Uh, it's been very cute and uh, quite fun, actually. Uh, some of the youths do very nice, uh, nice pictures. So this, uh, this is one of the verses that have always uh, uh, stayed with me from a uh, time of young. And uh, parents, maybe you might want to teach this to your children if you yourself don't know this. Uh, this is a verse that Jesus gives to us. So in the darkest of times, when I'm anxious and worried, my heart goes beating rapidly. I remind myself this uh, of what Jesus gives, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Uh, it somehow has a very calming effect uh, and we now need to teach our children uh, how to say this to themselves because it's a very high-pressured environment. Uh, I've titled today's uh, sharing, Another Helper uh, to Be With You Forever. Uh, it's taken from this passage which Mary has just uh, gently read to us. Now, let me begin with this uh, first statement uh, in verse 12. Um, I, I read this from the text itself. Very truly, I tell you, uh, it, this is almost like Jesus, if he were saying this in Aramaic, he would begin, Amen, Amen. Uh, truly, truly, I tell you, Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And continues on to say, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Recently, I had a friend who was, uh, has been in contact with me, and so part of this uh, spiritual accountability uh, three-to-one exercise that we're going on is that he gets to ask whatever question that he might ask, and uh, no such thing as a silly question or so. And he asked a very intelligent question, actually, one that has often sat in many people's mind. And his question was this, Pastor, when Jesus was on this earth, whoever came to him, he healed. True? I said, yeah, very true. That's correct. And so he uh, had these miracles that he was doing everywhere. And uh, there was never a point where he had no power or could not do what he, was, uh, what he wanted to do. Yeah, correct, yeah. 
Then after he left, he sent the Holy Spirit to us, right? And then there's this verse that says, he will do greater works. So why is it now, if the believer has the Holy Spirit in him, why is it that when we pray, the same miracles don't happen? I see from how you all are smiling, you all had the same question. So what's the answer? It kind of stumps us sometimes how we answer because yes, in a way, many of us have this perspective that if the Spirit of Jesus is with us and Jesus did all these miracles, He never de denied or declined anyone, why is it now when Christ is uh, in the heavenlies interceding for us and His Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus is with us, we are unable to do all these great works that Jesus did. So I'll attempt to answer this question. You may or may not like uh, the, the fullness of it, but feel free uh, to discourse with me when we talk. I'm going through a series of questions. Uh, uh, we, we know it as the six W's and one H. Uh, who, what, when, where, why, how. Right. So uh, let's first begin by this first question that you have in the text there. Who will do these great works? Who will do this great work? So the fact is, it says here, those who believe. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me. It's a very broad term. Whoever believes in me. Now, uh, I need to make this point because there are a number of people that come and say the age of apostolic uh, miracles is past that this power to perform miracles at whim is now no longer with us. And only the apostles had the ability to do these things. And thereafter, after this age, the dispensation is over, then we cannot do it anymore. Now, if you read the text for what it says, it says, whoever believes. And it's a future statement. It is present and future. Whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing. So whoever believes Christ, uh, they are the ones who do His work, who will be doing His work. So in my mind, and in the mind of many others who interpret this literally, the age of miracles is still going on. There are people who are performing miracles in the name of Jesus Christ who are still doing these signs and wonders. Our next question, what are the greater works? And this, to some extent, may shift some of our perspectives. Many of us, when we think about what, what did Jesus do, and he says, yeah, he turned water to wine. So every time I go to a church wedding, people say, Pastor, do the miracle. Lah. <laughs> no budget, you know. And, and we sputter there. But the work of Jesus was not to change water to wine, nor to make the... I mean, he came and did these things. But if you recall in the sermon that I said in the previous week, it was meant to be a sign that pointed to a final destination and that we're not to fall in love with the signs. You know, it's, it's uh, hilarious to think that a person would hug a signpost and say, I love this signpost, give me more of these signposts. When the signpost is pointing to the destination of God. So what was the work of God? And if you recall, in John chapter 6, verse 29, someone asked Jesus the very same question. What is 
what is it we must do in order to gain eternal life? Okay. And, and Jesus says, you, you need to do the work of God. And so what is the work of God? The work of God is to believe in the one he has sent, his son, Jesus. So what is the work that, that what is the greater work that we're going to be doing? The greater work is that we are going to cause more people to believe in Jesus than what Jesus did in his time. Now, did that happen? And the answer is yes. Because at the point when Jesus was here, right, at this time when he is saying these things, even his disciples didn't know who he was. Those closest to him had seen his signs. They think that he is the Son of God, but they're not too sure. It is only after he has been crucified, died, and resurrected again, and reappears, then suddenly, ah, yeah, I remember now, Jesus said all these things. So if he said all these things, and he has fulfilled all these promises, he must really be who he says he is. And thereafter, only at that point, were they willing to lay down their lives for the gospel. It was only after that. Even in this text, you see here, Thomas doesn't understand. Judas asks a lot of questions. And Jesus says to them, you do not understand now. You do not see. You do not believe yet. So they saw the signs. They believed the signs. But they didn't really believe or didn't understand what was the destination that it was arriving at. And Jesus' goal was not for them to acclaim the signs. Because in this very same text, and even what Chong Jin was saying on last week, you follow me because you see the signs and you want to eat bread. You want a new government. You want a new king. You want to get rid of this oppressive guy. But it's not because you acknowledge me as God. Jesus' mission, his great work, was that they would believe who he was. The Son of God sent to die for the sins of the world and grant them eternal life and show them the way, the truth and the life that they might be with him and live in his way. So what is the work? The work of God is to believe in the one he has sent. And at the end of the book of John, we have this statement which is given to Thomas, you know. Blessed is, you know, you believe because you see. He touched, uh, he touched the hands and he touched the side. But blessed is the one who has not seen yet believed. We don't see the signs, don't see the miracles. We don't have our ability to put our hands in his, in his sides. And yet we believe. But I think there are also, in a way, other miracles that we see day to day and yet do not believe because we do not ascribe it to God. The sun rises, the sun goes down, the waves come into the sea, the, the tides ebb and flow. We don't see that as miracles, we see that as acts of physics. But scripture tells us that the Lord sustains the entire universe, that every breath that we draw is given from God. But those are not seen as miracles. So really, the true fact of it is we want a miracle according to the signs that we demand because that's what the people who are following Jesus said. Show us a sign that we might believe. But what really they were saying is show us a sign that we want according to how we want 
that we might believe you. But how many signs does it take? Many of you have evidence of God's act in your life. But do you believe truly that God lives? Because if you truly did, then you would truly live according to how He would want you to live. But yet we know every time we fail and we ask, Lord, can you show yourself to me again that I might have a deeper faith in you? When do these signs occur? Or when is it the case that people will truly believe that Jesus is the Son when Jesus goes to the Father? In fact, in the Scripture, he says, when the Son of God is lifted up, when the Son of Man is lifted up. And when he's lifted up, there are two ways in when he was lifted up. One was when he was crucified on the cross. The other one was when he was basically carried up into the heavens to come back again at a later point. So this time is given that it will occur after. And we see this in evidences of what the apostles did. We see this also evidences as things that are happening even now in places where we see throughout the world. Now I want to continue with this point there. Where? It's not uh, located in a special place. Notice, right? Many people say, oh, you must go to this particular uh, church or you must go to this uh, particular statue, uh, touch that statue and somehow you will be healed. You know, particular places are considered sacred, but no, that's not how Jesus sent it. You know, he says, go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I will be with you. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, I used to think that, you know, a miracle required for disciples to be there until I heard that people are being converted to Christianity without Christians being there. That, to me, is a miracle. Has that happened? Yes, it has happened in countries where persecution of Christians occur, where there is zero Christians we have testimonies coming to us from Barnabas Fund, from Open Doors, from all these organizations that work in persecuted nations, uh, persecuted Christian nations, and in nations where there have been known to be no Christians. How do these occur? People pray, and that verse that says, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me, comes true. They see a vision of a person coming quite often in white, but a person comes to them and reveals himself as Jesus. They don't know who he is other than the name and they go around searching and finally they find out when they find some of these people. So it is a situation where these miracles are occurring even where Christians are not there. Now it doesn't mean that therefore, hey, man, we Christians don't need to go. Lah. We just pray and then, you know, they get dream, fantastic. No, we are called to go. Even, and it's a partnership between, with us and God. It's not one where we say, well, God, you know, no matter what I do, you're going to do it anyway. No. Particularly as Methodists, we believe that we're in partnership with God. We work hand in hand with Him. He does what He alone can do, and we do the thing that we are called to do. So where? Everywhere. To the ends of the earth. When? Anytime now. And we see these miracles occurring 
in many of these places. We come now to this next question. How? And why? We've already done what is it, when will he do it, where will he do it, who will do it. But why and how will he do it? Let's read verse 13. Verse 13 begins by saying, And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So the big question of why, I'm going to answer this twice because Jesus actually gives it in two uh, different verses. He says why and how, then he says why again and how again. The first why is he does this so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He does this so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So the whole purpose of miracles is that Jesus would be glorified and our Father in heaven will be glorified with Him together. If there are any miracles that fail to fulfill this condition, those miracles aren't exactly from God. They may be products of other things. I'm very mindful some people tell me, hey, you know, Christians are not the only ones who seem to be doing all these miracles and wonders and signs. <clears throat> you go to Batu Caves, you go around Penang, you see all people skewered all over and they are walking in a trance. Uh, we see Kuda Kapang thingies and they're doing all these signs and wonders as well. But who does that glorify? And what does it actually glorify? <clears throat> and most of the glory goes into the Bomo who is doing this or the temples that are doing these things. But what also is the fruit of it? What also is the fruit of it? But the miracles that Jesus does, particularly in the power of the Holy Spirit, is done for the purpose that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So Jesus will always point to the Father. The Holy Spirit will always point to the Father and the Son. They don't glorify themselves. How will he do it? He says, if you ask in my name, I will do it. So in this particular resentencing, if you ask in Jesus' name, he will do it. So why does he do it? That his Father may be glorified. How does he do it? He is the one who does it. His power. Now, there's this precondition in there. That's all he said. He doesn't say, just ask. He says, ask in my name. And if you ask for anything in my name, I will do it. So what, what's this particular preoccupation with his name? No, it's not that the name Jesus Christ is the one that does it. It is the character, the person, the nature, the will, the soul of Jesus Christ. It's very simple uh, to try and understand this. If my son asks me, Dad, I want to do this, and it's the very thing that I want, to, want him to do or want to do for him, I don't have a problem doing it for him. So that's what it means when a son or a, a person asks in the name of another. He's asking because that other person has given him the power and also the reason and the very will to do these things. He is having the authority. 
an ambassador or a diplomat who goes overseas, who says in the name of the king or in the name of the prime minister, he carries the seal. It is in the name. He has the power, he has the will, and he's executing the very will. So whenever a person prays and he prays in accordance to the will of God, God will see to it that it's done. Now, does that mean that we are going to ask for things that, uh, that are not in God's will? Oh, yes. Very often. Very often I have prayed, Lord, will you please strike down that person? <laughs> Out of anger. Because I know my selfish will would be that I would abuse this power. And God in His awesome mercy for me and for that person decides, no, I'm not going to do that. So in our petty wants and our dislikes, the ability to abuse the power that God gives to us, God alone is the one who does it. He's not at my command. I am at His command. So the very miracles that, I got, I, that we pray for, it's always, Your will be done. And we are just a channel. So then, when we go to, uh, to any situation, let's say you have a person in a hospital bed and that person is sick, you don't know whether he's going to recover and get well, are you going to wrestle with this question? If I pray, <laughs> I say, Lord Jesus, heal this person, and the next day he dies, then it seems as if my God is pretty uh, hopeless. So then do I pray or do I not pray? So what would you do? Maybe you want to just whisper to the person next to you, what is it? You're going to pray, not going to pray? Here's what I do. In all situations when people ask me, can you, can you pray for healing? I will pray for healing all the time because we agree that Jesus healed everyone who came to him. But what is healing? The person who's sick wants to be healed in order that they be able to walk again, have a few more hours or days or so forth to continue to spend their life. But that's not really healing. That's basically giving you a moment of reprieve for you to continue doing what you want to do. And so for true healing to occur, healing means reconciliation with God in the understanding of what Jesus is trying to do. Even as Jesus heals Lazarus by raising him from the dead, Lazarus eventually dies again, where he finally finds his true healing. So I pray for healing in one of three ways. I pray for healing supernaturally in the same way that Jesus caused a lame person to be able to walk again, or the same way that the person who was blind from birth was able to see. I ask for that. Lord, in your mercy, if you will, would you give this person healing? that they may receive this as a sign that you would be glorified and our Father in heaven will be glorified in the name of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let this be. But healing can also come through the ministry of the doctors, the nurses, the family and the friends. And the healing may take time. And we see that at times or so when Jesus healed, it wasn't immediate. There were times when it basically took a while, a couple of times. And so we pray for that too, through wisdom for the doctors, through proper diagnosis, that is healing. But then there's also healing in the form of death. 
that the person finally returns back to the Lord and has made his peace with God and is finally restored and given a new body, not made with human hands, but eternal in the heavenlies. Final, eternal, complete healing. And in the ministry that I've been involved in, especially with end of life, there are a number of situations where many of them pray for that. They come to me and they just tell me, Pastor, pray with me that the Lord takes me. <laughs> How do you pray that? Because to them, they said, I'm tired, I'm weary, I'm just waiting for the time for Him to take me home. And then my healing is truly done. My body no longer leaks in places when I don't want it to. And I'm fully restored. So do I pray for healing? Yes. In any one of these three ways. And I make it clear to the other person as well. I'm praying for your healing. But I trust that you understand that your healing means salvation for your soul. Many of our friends, even within our church, actually pray for that more than they do for healing, salvation. Because salvation is eternal. Salvation is eternal. A life won to Christ, living in the fruit of the Spirit, is eternal. Healing is temporary for a while. So in what time that you have, it's best that you spend it trying to spread this gospel of Jesus goodness. Again, how will he do it? And why does he do this? So the first one we had is this is what Jesus is going to do. Why does he do it? So that he'll glorify the Father. How will he do it? He himself will do it in his power. But the next why and the next how is what about you? Why would I do it? And so he says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Now, I want to read this because it gives you a phenomenal definition of love. Verse 15. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, he will give you another advocate, paraclete, uh, helper to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. I read also verse 23. Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Now, I say it's a phenomenal definition of love. Because what Jesus is saying, love is not a feeling, love is not, you know, the things that you love, essentially is obedience to what Jesus commands. Why is it a, a, an interesting definition? I used to have a small group, and we had some people who came, and in one of those situations, we had this uh, young lady who came and said, I don't need to read the Bible. Jesus has already said, love one another. That's good enough. So the only commandment I have is love one another. And so my question is, how do you love? And her response was, love. You know, when you feel love for someone and you basically want to share a life with them. And for her, um, sadly for her, the, the definition of her love was essentially what I feel about it, when I feel good about it. 
But that's not the definition that Jesus gives. If you love me, <laughs> you will obey my commandments. So a person who loves God obeys the commandments. So it's not just a matter of I know and I assent. It is also an obedience to what he says. Much in the same way that a mother who loves a child or a father who loves a child doesn't just feel lovey-dovey, fuzzy, warm feelings, but in the middle of the night at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning when the child comes up and crying, belching green stuff out or purging stuff in all directions, they still come and attend to the child. Now the father, in spite of all the pain he encounters, does it. Why? Because he's commanded to. It is his imperative, not because he feels, oh, this is a very warm and fuzzy thing to do. It isn't. How will he do it? He will give you another parakletos. Now, I've chosen to use the term parakletos because the Greek parakletos is slightly more nuanced meaning compared to the various translations that we have in the NIV. In the NIV, uh, you have either helper, counsellor, advocate. All three are applicable. All three mean slightly different things. But parakletos actually means almost like a, a legal advocate, one who comes alongside with you and walks with you, encourages you, and helps you. That helper is not, your sub you know, not a subset or a subordinate of yours. That helper is stronger than you. But it's also this, and this is another uh, one which I hope you will be able to wrap your brain around because for many people it didn't sink in, although they understood the word. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another, another advocate. Now, common English meaning is another means there was one other. This is the second so who is this previous one? Jesus. And so if this parakletos is coming and he is another paraclete like Jesus, then the function of the Holy Spirit is very much similar to what Jesus does. Which means for the 12 disciples or the 11 that were finally faithful and all these other followers... The very thing that Jesus was to them, the Holy Spirit is to them and to us now. But how many of us operate and function in the same way that since the Holy Spirit is with us, then Jesus is here speaking to us through the Holy Spirit? Now, I'm not going into a sermon about the Holy Spirit but there's some things which maybe you want to open your minds to because from the period at the end of Luke until the beginning of Acts where Jesus had not yet ascended to heaven, he was still on the earth, the Holy Spirit was already speaking to them independently of Jesus. So they could hear from the Holy Spirit and they could then confirm with Jesus, Jesus, did you mean that? And they had the ability to concur, yeah, 
This was the other advocate who knew what Jesus and the Father wanted and was talking to them. And they were doing miracles through them. So the very thing that will cause us to do this greater work is the motivation of love for God in obedience to His commandments and the power that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit, this advocate, this comforter, this uh, strength really that carries you and sustains you forever. Now, I'm going to make a slight aside here because uh, many of my friends get confused when they argue with uh, people like uh, Muslim da'wah. They will say in the Muslim da'wah, oh, you know, in your Gospel, John, uh, uh, Jesus says he is sending a parakletos. This parakletos is Muhammad. Because Muhammad is the helper, the one who comes. And our answer is, uh, sorry, no, that does not fit the description that John gives. One, John says he is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. Muhammad is not a spirit, he is a man. This parakletos, the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of God. Two, this Holy Spirit, parakletos, will be with you forever. <laughs> Muhammad came and Muhammad died. That's not forever. So we very clearly refute many of the confusion, much of the confusion that they say, oh, this parakletos that Jesus is referring to is pointing to uh, Muhammad. Not the same. Not the same. Although they like to use the same word, parakletos. Mind you, in the Arabic, there is no such term, parakletos. So they just give him helper. This helper, parakletos, this is... That's an aside, okay? So, why does Jesus do it? Jesus do it because he wants to glorify the Father. How will he do it? Through him doing it personally to the Spirit of Jesus. Why do we do it? Out of love. How do we do it? In the power of the Holy Spirit. And so let me touch on this last portion here. Jesus says, I will send you another helper, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Truth, as philosophy and uh, sociology would define it, it has to be defined based on philosophical constructs or evidentiary proof. But truth, according to how the Bible defines it, is in a relationship with Jesus, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this relationship is established through the power of the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth. And this truth, which you and I understand, the world cannot receive because they do not understand it, do not accept it, do not allow for it. What is the world? The world, uh, science, it says, prove to me that the Holy Spirit exists. How does a science or material science prove a thing that is intangible and spirit? You can't. There are two separate systems. You cannot use one system to prove the other. So it is another helper, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. And I think as Christians, one of the most important constructs of our life as we go on as Christians is the importance of truth. You need truth 
the hardcore painful truth in order for you to be able to see clearly. Or else everything else is lies. It may be comforting, but it is still a lie. And so when we dialogue with people who don't believe in God, they also hold to this importance of truth. But for many of them, truth is relative. For us, truth is founded in this relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, Jesus says, you know Him. You know Him, you yada, you gnosis is the Greek word for it. You know Him mentally, emotionally, in your heart. It's not just a mental uh, ascent. It is also an internal thing. You know Him for He dwells with you and will be in you. Okay, very important preposition statements. It dwells with you and is in you. And you will know this because you will know that you are not orphans. You're not alone. So if you ask me, how do, how do we know, how do we define a person who is a Christian? A person who is truly a Christian is one who knows the Holy Spirit. He is the sign and the seal. He is the gift that is given at the point when we believe. Therefore, if you do not know Him, and you do not, are not aware that He dwells in you and is with you, then you should come and talk to me. One of the clear signs of this is that when a person knows that in spite of the fact that they are alone, they're not orphans. They're not orphans. In other words, when we face other situations, when we feel totally isolated alone, you have this comforting feeling of the Holy Spirit being with you, that you are not alone. God is still there with you. It is something which you cannot define. It is only something that you experience in the same way that a relationship is experienced more than it is defined. You know Him. He dwells with you will be in you. The one who has and keeps God's commandments loves and is loved by God and Jesus will manifest himself to him. Manifest through how? How? Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit of Jesus Christ manifesting himself. So one of the very things then in which we actually sense and know the presence of God is when we keep his commandments. He is the one that causes us to want to keep His commandments. He convicts us of our sin, causes us to repent. If you ask me one of the key differences when I was younger and as I'm older, uh, not so much in terms of age, but in terms of spiritual maturity, I realized that when I was far away from God, my predisposition to continue to do that which was wrong was very high. It was only when I began to say God matters and by God's grace, God's help, He reminds me. That's when suddenly I realized I really don't want to do these things anymore. So it's something that occurs where the Spirit itself gives you the ability to want to fulfill His commandments. And that is the very way that God manifests Himself. 
Now, I mentioned this earlier on. The spirit of truth, love, and peace, the parakletos, singular. Okay. The Holy Spirit is what we call Jesus' peace with us. So let me read this, verse 26. The Advocate, the Paracletos, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. This very peace that we're seeking, that sometimes we encounter in our hearts, this is the movement of the Holy Spirit within you. Because as John defines it, this Holy Spirit, this thing, is the very thing that Jesus gives. Peace I give to you, not as this world gives, because the Holy Spirit didn't come from the world. The Holy Spirit comes from God. And God asked the Father, Father, will you give them the Holy Spirit? He will teach and bring remembrance, uh, bring to remembrance Jesus' words to you. The focus of the Holy Spirit is always to bring to remembrance Jesus, to point to Father, to glorify Him. Now, many people sometimes focus too much on the Holy Spirit. It's a bit like staring at a spotlight. Because the purpose of the spotlight is to shine a light on Jesus and the Father. The purpose of the spotlight is not for you to stare at the spotlight. Same way, the purpose of the signpost is to point you to God, not for you to fall in love with the signpost. He will teach you, bring to remembrance Jesus' words. So what are we to do in this? Going forward, how do we apply this? A very serious question for you to answer is, Jesus manifests to you. Do you know the spirit of love, truth, and peace? Do you have this abiding sense of God's presence with you? One of which is to basically believe and receive. To believe and receive. Note, there are situations that there are some people who, in a way, kind of understand intellectually and we subscribe to the Christian traditions, but we do not truly believe and place our entire trust and for those of us who may at times feel like orphans in this world, this is Jesus' invitation to you to receive the Holy Spirit, to obey the commandments. And the commandments are quite straightforward. Huh? Love God, love one another, and reflect the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. So one is to act on this. If you do not yet have this manifest presence of Jesus in you, come and speak to me or the small group leaders or any of the church leaders. We will pray with you and maybe talk to you about how we can begin this journey of greater, deeper discipleship. The second one is this question of what Jesus basically started with. Truly, truly, I tell you, that the one who believes in me will do greater works than what I have been doing. So are you doing the greater work of discipling and bringing others to salvation, to believing in God? Because that's what he called us to do. And one of the signs and the examples that we are called to this. My hope 
in the years to come as I continue to be here is to encourage and equip you with the task of sharing the gospel and bringing others to faith. It is not about winning souls so that our church membership is larger. It is not that. It is about sharing love. Much in the same way, if you love your wife, you show and tell others how you love your wife or how you love your husband, how you love your grandparents. It is talking about the person whom you love, why you love them. It's telling a love story. So maybe if you feel, oh, no, I'm not a salesman, I don't want to sell Jesus, or I don't want to sell God. No, you're not. You're talking about the person you love and sharing and bearing witness about how He is with you and helping you. So let me end with this thought. Let's bow our heads as we come to the Lord in prayer. Will you go forward in time to do this greater work of sharing the gospel? And will you also take this time to ask that the Holy Spirit manifest Christ Jesus to you with these words in your head, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Let us pray. Dear Lord, there are some among us who might want to do this greater work of miracles and signs, but don't, help, don't make us into signposts, Lord. Help us instead to be journeyers and disciples who are bringing others to faith and bringing them to the final destination of belief in Christ Jesus. Help us to do the greater work, Lord, the greater work of salvation in Christ, that we might share the gospel of good news of God's love for us and for others, to others, Lord, whom you place in relationship with us. And continue, Lord, to sustain and encourage us as we remain obedient to your love and teach us your ways, Lord. We commit this to you, asking all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Friends, will you rise with me as we sing this